All right, we're ready for Isaiah chapters 40 to 44 in our study tonight. A most interesting section. All of them, I think, in one way or another are interesting. Um, but we begin a new section uh, tonight, a new second half as far as the major divisions, not number of chapters. Uh, this is our outline of the book, chapters 1 to 39. We finished chapter 39 last time. We're starting chapter 40. So we're shifting gears completely. In the first section, we talked about judgment from God, the Assyrian period. And if you're looking to fill out the handout, one of the first things we're looking for is that we have been dealing with the Assyrian period, whereas here we're dealing with the Babylonian period. We're shifting periods. And we'll say more about that here in just a moment. But chapters 40 to 46, I call it simply comfort from God, hope for troublesome times, the remnant returns. In chapters 1 to 39, there was something said about Babylonian captivity coming, but the period was dealing with the threat of Assyria. And where Syria was trying to rattle the cage of Jerusalem, and is it going to scare them to death to the point that they put their confidence in another nation to defend them, or are they going to believe what God tells them, that I'm not going to let Assyria have you? They're going, they're going to shake you, they're going to ruffle your feathers, but they're not going to have you. Are they going to believe that? Well, now we're shifting gears in chapters 40 to 46, I mean 66, where we're focusing on the future. And in this, we're going to see there's deliverance from Babylonian captivity that was introduced in chapter 39. We'll say more about that here in just a second. That's 40 to 48. Then there's the suffering servant, 49 to 57. We're going to get into that section more into the messianic prophecies. We've had several messianic prophecies. We're going to look at least two tonight. Uh, but we're going to have even more of those in 49 to 57. Then there's the future glory, 58 to 66. Now we're going to say more about that little subdivision here in just a moment from verse 2. So this is where we are. We're in this first subsection talking about deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Now let's go back to chapter 39 in our mind. I'm not going to turn back there, but chapter 39, the last chapter we dealt with had dealt with the announcement of Babylonian captivity. There would be Babylonian captivity. Now you get this picture of Isaiah's period of prophecy. He's prophesying to them when Assyria was a threat to them, but he tells them while Assyria is still in power that Assyria is going to fall and Babylon is going to rise. And they can't even see Babylon coming yet, but Babylon is going to be the predominant power. And then he goes and further prophesies that Babylon is going to fall and Persia is going to rise. And that's when, when Babylon is going to fall. And it's, if they see the fulfillment of the first prophecy, they ought to have confidence in the second and in the third. And we're going to see more about that in our study uh, tonight. So keep in mind that what is said in chapter 40 beginning is said in light of that mentioning of Babylonian captivity in chapter 39. So here's what happens in chapters 40 to 44. I call this simply deliverance from Babylonian captivity. That carries us through not only 44, but through chapter 48. We're going to look at four things. We have five chapters to cover, so we have some ground to go tonight. But we uh, have four points. We're grouping 42 and 43 together. Chapter 40 deals with a look at the greatness of God to comfort the people. We'll come back to the comfort in a moment. Then in chapter 41, there's a challenge. Can God, uh, uh, God can foretell the future, but can the gods of the nations do that? 
That is the idols of the nations. Can they do that? And then 42 and 43 go together of God taking care of his people. And then 44, Israel should not fear because the one true God promises to deliver. And so you see this overriding theme again that we saw in chapters 1 to 39. Are you going to put your confidence in God in what he says? Or are you going to put your confidence elsewhere? And that's why we said chapter 31 in verse 1 would summarize the entire book. All right, let's start with chapter 40 now. There's more than one point in chapter 40. We'll get to the second point in just a moment. But let's look at verses 1 through 11. I call this a look at the greatness of God, the chapter, to comfort his people. So in verses 1 through 11, comfort is needed and comfort will be given. So one of the questions in the the handout is, why is there a need for comfort? Because of the announcement of the coming of Babylonian captivity. And so you think about, put yourself in the position of listening to the preaching of Isaiah, that you're scared to death concerning Assyria, but he's assured you Assyria is not going to take you. You think, okay, that's over. Maybe, I hope. And then he says, Babylon is rising and Babylon will take you. Now things seem to get worse. So there is a need for comfort to people who are going to Babylonian captivity. Those who are faithful are going to come back as a remnant. So with that preceding announcement, there is a comfort that is needed. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. God speaks comfort to Jerusalem. So he said, comfort, yes, comfort my people. That's the point of verses 1 through 11. This, you might underline, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. And notice now the next three themes. And I've tried to highlight these and suggest that from each one of these phrases, that seems to summarize the rest of the book. From chapter 40 to 66. The first is that her warfare is ended. I think that's a reference to Babylonian captivity that is yet to happen is going to come to an end. Notice how far God works in his prophecy. It's not when Babylon is knocking at the door about to make their siege on Jerusalem that God prophesies, oh, by the way, this looks like Babylon is going to take you. I think I'll prophesy. God prophesies before Babylon ever rises in power. And so Babylonian captivity is going to rise, but now he's prophesying they're going to end. And so her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That would seem to be what chapters 49 to 57 is talking about. The Messiah will take away the sin. And as often as the prophet does, as he often does, he paints the back dark ground of, of the nation and then he puts the brighter days of the Messiah out against that. And then the next phrase was, for she has received double from the Lord's hand double, has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And some have suggested that that perhaps summarizes 58 to 66, the balancing of the scales of justice, as Harkrider would word it, or the future glory, as we have put it in our our outline. Um, So perhaps that is a summary of the rest of the chapter. The comfort, comfort my people. And then he makes these three points, and that's the rest of the book. So the rest of the book is about comfort. So if you have been just a little uh, down about the book of Isaiah thinking, you know, it's a prophecy of doom and, you know, this nation is doomed and this nation is doomed and Judah and Israel is doomed and uh, repentance is needed, then here is future glory and comfort found in chapters 40 to 48 summarized right here in verse 2. 
So let's go back now to our outline. God speaks comfort to his people, verses 1 and 2. Now then, here is verses 3 through 11, better days under the Messiah. Now, this is not new to us because this is what the prophet has been doing. He talks about a dark background of sin, of a nation, or problems, and then growing out of that, he paints a brighter future. So this is our first. If you look on the back of your handout, you're looking for at least two here. This is the first of the two we're looking for. And this is a messianic section. We know that because of Matthew chapter 3. So we have here the better days under the Messiah. Verses 3 and 4 now talk about a forerunner is going to prepare the way of the Lord. This is quite obvious. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, uh, make, uh, make straight in the uh, desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall be made straight. Well, you see the point. It's like preparing, uh, uh, making a road better for the entrance of, of someone majestic, a king. So you take the crooked road and you make it straight. You take the hill and bring it down. You take the valley and you raise it up. And so you're making the road straight, preparing the way. So there is a forerunner coming for the Messiah. Who is that referring to? Well, obviously John the Baptist. And we know that because that's quoted, and you're looking for this in your handout, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, where it's quoted there saying it applied to John the Baptist. That's how I know for sure that it refers to John the Baptist. So this is a messianic section. Now, at verse 5, your, your workbook has verse 4, but it's verse 5. All flesh will see the glory of the Lord. All flesh will see the glory of the Lord. Notice at verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh, that is, Jew and Gentile shall see it. Parallel to Isaiah chapter 2, all nations shall flow unto it. Now, in verses 6 to 9, glad tidings are going to be proclaimed. That is, under the Messiah that comes, when the Messiah comes, glad tidings, it's a spread of the gospel. Um, Notice uh, verse 6, the voice cried out and said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all its loveliness is as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows, uh, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now this is quite interesting. Because one of the other things you're looking for in your handout is, this is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1, 24 and 25. They're emphasizing the enduring nature of the word. Well, that's the point being made here, is the enduring nature of the word. So the point is, glad tidings are going to be proclaimed uh, in, in verses 6 to 9. Um, that is... Uh, the, the, the message of the gospel is going to go forth. Look at verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good, good tidings, that's the word of the Lord that stands forever. Get up, on the, uh, get it up into the mountain, uh, high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. The good tidings are the good, good message. The gospel is going to be proclaimed because the word of the Lord endures when nations do not. Now, here's the thing you're looking for in your handout. All flesh refers to nations. We apply it to people, individuals, and I have used this passage at, at funerals, that all flesh is as grass. And, uh, and so what, what's the point of flesh being like grass? Well, as grass uh, uh, withers and the flower fades, the grass comes up and then it withers and it dies. It doesn't last long. And then uh, it comes again and then it withers and the flowers bloom and then they fade and then they bloom again and they fade. That's the way flesh does. And I don't think that's a misuse of the text. But really, it's talking about nations as per the context. 
And so you think about God raises up uh, Assyria and Assyria like a, like a blade of grass withers. And Babylon rises up and it withers. And then Persia rises up and it withers. And the United States rises up and it will wither. At some point, it will wither. And so it's true of all nations. But the one thing that endures forever is the word of the Lord. And if that's not comforting, we could stop now. And we've been comforted, I hope. That's comforting to know the word of the Lord endures forever. Nations come and go. People come and go. But I really think that refers to nations for what that may be worth to you. Uh, now, verses 10 and 11, protection and care will be given to, uh, to the flock of God. I'm not going to take the time to develop that except to say, verse 11, he will feed his flock uh, like a shepherd. So God's going to take care of his people. And I think that's in the day of the Messiah. So comfort is needed. And God speaks comfort to Jerusalem and says comfort's coming and announces three major points, which is the summary of the book. And then said there's better days under the Messiah. All right. Now let's go further and start at verse 12. We see one of the greatest sections of the book of Isaiah. And that is this great, every preacher's got a sermon starting at verse 12 going to verse 31, the greatness of our God. Well, here's the point of this. It's not just that, uh, let's do a study of God and the nature of God, but it is this comfort is coming from a mighty God. And look at how great and how mighty he is. And he is the one that's offering comfort to you. Um, he's the one that's in control. Maybe this is a poor illustration, but suppose that, that suddenly our nation was bombed with atomic bombs that was 10 times worse than what happened in 9-11. And someone who seemed to be somewhat of a leader comes and tells you everything's going to be okay. This is all going to work out all right. I kind of want to know how this person knows that. What power they have. What knowledge they have. Is it just some underling that's just guessing or is it somebody that's telling me that everything's going to be okay? Well, when, when God says Babylon is going to take you, but you're going to come back, it's coming from the God that's described right here. So let's run through this quickly, not because it's unimportant, but because this is not all that hard to comprehend. So the rest of this chapter deals with the greatness of, of God. So let's look at verses 10, uh, 12 to, to uh, 14. His greatness is seen as, he, as it's compared to the world that he created. For example, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hands and measures the heaven in a span. A span uh, is the, the width across from, from your uh, longest finger to your thumb. God can take his, and it's not literally, God has a literal hand, but it's like God can measure the heavens with a span. I can't do that. You can't do that. But can you imagine measuring the heavens with a span and holding all the waters of all the oceans in the palm of his hand? That's the greatness of our God. All right, let's go further beginning at verse uh, Verse 14, I said beginning there, that's ending that section. Um, this reminds me of Romans eleven fourteen, 14, that, and with whom shall he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him the path of justice? In other words, who's wise enough and smart enough to set in judgment on God and give God some advice? No one is wise enough. He's the one that holds the world in the palm of his hand. Now, beginning at verse 15 now through 17. So 15 to 17, uh, compared to the nations. Uh, what does he say about the nations? Behold, the nations are a drop of a bucket. It's a picture of taking a bucket to the well. And if you ever went to the well and picked up a bucket of water and you're carrying it back to the house, there are drops that fall off of the bottom of the bucket and you don't look back and say, oh, I've lost a lot of water. Those are insignificant. 
You don't even know how many fell off. You don't care because they're insignificant. Nations are like the drop that falls off the bottom of the bucket. They're insignificant in comparison to God. Big nations like Assyria, Babylon, United States, Russia, China are insignificant in comparison to God. All right, let's go further. Look at verse, um, verse 17, all nations are before him as nothing. Let's go down to verse 18, compared to idols, what's he like? The, to whom shall we liken God, what likeness? And he talks about how the workman <clears throat> makes his uh, uh, carved image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And verse 20, basically, if I may paraphrase, those that are too poor to have the gold covering theirs, they make this wooden God, and then they... Uh, uh, they seek for a craftsman to support it and build it so it won't totter and fall over. Uh, so they've got, to make, they've got to support their God rather than their God supporting them. Uh, in comparison to the gods, we don't have to support our God. He supports us. Uh, let's talk about number four compared to the mighty of the earth, 21 to 24. Uh, have you not hon uh, uh, known or have you not heard? That he sets on the, look at, I'm, I'm skipping some things I recognize. Verse 22, he sets above the circle of the earth and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And uh, he's talking about princes, like at verse 23. Uh, what, what's he saying? That the, the leaders, you, you take Sennacherib, uh, you take Nebuchadnezzar, uh, any of those great leaders, later Nero, Domitian, uh, Putin, Biden, Trump, any great leader, power, by great I mean powerful leader, they're nothing compared to God. Uh, they have nothing in comparison to God. He brings the princes to nothing, verse 23. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted and sown, etc. Uh, he blows them away like stubble, verse 24. Uh, so there's the greatness of our God. Verses 24 and 25, he controls the stars. He controls the stars. Uh, lift up your eyes, I'm reading at verse 26 on high, and, uh, and see who has created these things. That is, look to the heavens and what do you see? Uh, he brings out their host by number and he calls them by name. Uh, scientists don't even know how many stars there are. God knows and he's named every one of them. In other words, he, he knows exactly. He knows exactly how many hairs are on your head and how many stars there are. Now, verse 27 to 30, he is the source of all power and all strength. And so all power... That is, any leader that has power, any strength that any animal has or anything else, all power, all strength, ultimately comes from God. Uh, the everlasting, I'm reading at verse 28, the everlasting God, uh, have you not known or have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. In other words, God never faints, he never grows weary, he's full of strength. Uh, even those uh, that in their youth, verse 20, or verse 30, uh, will faint and become weary. Even the youngest who say, I'm, I'm invincible. You're going to get tired. You're going to get weary. God never gets weary. Now, verse 31 is one that we hear quoted many times, and it's a source of encouragement. But those who wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord is to serve the Lord. And so if you're serving the, to those, let's rephrase that for, for clarity. Those who serve the Lord shall renew their strength and shall mount up their wings like eagles and shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. In other words, we gain our strength from the Lord. Parallel, perhaps, to Philippians 4, 13. I can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So those who serve the Lord faithfully gain their strength from the Lord. And that mean you'll never get physically tired. I'm talking about spiritual strength. You gain your strength and you never grow tired when you get your strength indeed from the Lord. 
All right, now I know that's a hurried look, but that's chapter 40 now. Looking at the greatness of God brings comfort because comfort is needed in light of the coming Babylonian doom. That is the Babylonian captivity. You're going to be released from it, but you've got to go through that. But there's better days under the Messiah. But this is coming from a God that has all might and all power and all strength. All right, let's shift gears. Let's go to chapter 41. Uh, chapter 41. Um, but by the way, I'm, 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 I want to go back. I'm, there's, I missed something in chapter 40 and verse 27. And the point seems to be that God's people may think when they get into Babylonian captivity, we've been forgotten. And so verse 27, I think he's playing to that idea. Why should you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Uh, in other words, don't say my way is hidden from the Lord. I don't think that's saying God doesn't see what we're doing. God's forgot about us over here. Uh, it's going to be there for 70 years by the time the 50th year rolls around and the 60th year rolls around and getting near 70. God's forgotten about us over here. Oh, no, he hadn't forgotten. Uh, God, who has all power, all strength, all might, has promised you're coming out of captivity. He hadn't forgotten about you at all. Now, chapter 41. Here is a challenge. God can foretell the future, but can the gods of the nations do that? So three things happen here. There's an announcement to the nations that one will rise from the east. All right, let's see what's going on here. And you have some question on this on your handout. God, the great God that's just been described in chapter 40, has the power to foretell the future. That's obvious. If he is that great God that we just talked about, then he can foretell the future. And so he foretells of the rise of Babylon, but he also foretells of the fall of Babylon before Babylon ever rises. And he's going to, uh, that's going to happen with the rise of the, the Persians. So let's see what he says here in verses uh, 1 to 7. Uh, first of all, there's the call to the nations to judgment. Keep silence before the Lord, O coastlands, all, and let the people renew their strength. And let them come near, and let them speak, and let them come near together for judgment. It's a picture of the nations being called as to a court trial. Uh, come to this court session and be silent and listen to God. If you can gather enough strength to stand before him and state your case, come and state your case. That's basically what's being said. Now notice beginning at verse 2, who raised up one from the east? Now, if you're looking at your workbook or you have your workbook, you might look at your footnote. I believe it's footnote um, number, number 8. It talks about him being from the east. And then later, he is identified as, as being uh, from elsewhere, from the north. Uh, and, and in chapter 40, is it 46? I believe it is. I've done lost my reference here. Um, 46 and in verse 11. Uh, he's from the east. And, um, and also he's, he's pictured as being from, from the north, chapter 41 and verse 25. That's the verse I was looking for. Uh, so he's mentioned from the east and from the north. That's not a contradiction. Look at your footnote. I won't take the time to go into that. Footnote number eight in your workbook. Uh, be that as it may. He's talking about Cyrus and the Persians, that who, is, uh, who raised up the one from the east and who is uh, righteous and called him to his feet. In other words, who gave him that power? Who raised up this one from the east? And he's talking about, Bab uh, not, uh, not Babylon, but the Persians rising to take down Babylon. Babylon hasn't even come to power yet, but God's foretelling that. So who, who does that? 
And the answer to that is, the God of heaven did that. The God of heaven. Uh, look at verse 4. Who has performed and done it, calling the generation from the beginning, I the Lord am the first, and I am the last, am he. Now, that is an affirmation of the eternal nature of God. If we didn't see his eternal nature in chapter 40, we definitely see it here in chapter 41. That's an affirmation of the eternal nature of God. So who, who is it that allows the Persians to rise? And Cyrus, he's going to be mentioned later um, before this book is through. Cyrus will be identified by name. Who did that? Who allows all of that? The God of heaven did that. Now let's go to 5 to 7. You have a question about this in your handout. What was the reaction of the nations? Well, when Cyrus rises in power, what the nations are going to do, they're going to draw close together in fear. The coastland saw it and they feared, verse 5. And they drew and they came, and everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. They, they, they're shaking in fear. And they gather together to try to help one another when they see Cyrus rise in power. All right, at verse 7, <clears throat> this, is, this is almost comical. At verse 7, the other reaction is that the craftsmen seek to make their, their God stronger to help them in the face of judgment. So the craftsmen encouraged the goldsmith and he smooths out the hammer and inspired him to strike the anvil saying, it is, all, uh, it is ready for soldering and he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. And so we got to have stronger and better gods. Uh, we're scared to death, so let's make our gods stronger. That one may fall over, so let's, let's brace it up so our gods will take care of us. And so that's what they're doing. So that was the reaction of the nations. Two reactions, fear, and then they make their gods stronger. So an announcement to the nations that one's coming from the east. Cyrus is going to rise. Well, that should be an encouragement to God's people. Because if the Persians rise, that means the end of Babylonian captivity that had been announced. So we've left chapter 39 saying Babylon is coming. We're just now in 41. What's that? 39, 40, 41. That's three chapters in it. Two chapters later, rather. Uh, that... We're already seeing that Babylon's going to fall. That should be an encouragement and comfort. That's what we're after in these chapters. Now let's go to 8 through 20. God tells his people not to fear. That's what he said in chapters 1 to 39 about Assyria. You don't need to fear. And here's that message again. Now let's stop and footnote, and then we're going to go work through our text and see if we can make application as we go through the text to ourselves. Uh, we made this point Sunday morning uh, about being fearful um, and we're too fearful of things at times where we want to put our confidence in God. And so, so when, when threats come to our nation, our threats, um, as maybe we've had for the last couple of years, maybe, maybe more confidence in God and less fear would be more productive. And we see that right here in verses 8 to 20. Let's work our way uh, through 8 through 20. Now, here's why they need not fear. Starting at verse 8, he said, But you, Israel, are my servants. And Jacob I have chosen, the descendant of Abraham, my friend. So he uses the term so, uh, servant, and he uses the term friend, and uh, he uses the term chosen, three terms to describe his people. That you need not fear because you are my chosen. I make the point in the workbook, and I think it's a legitimate point, that after all, God's going to protect this nation. This is the nation through whom he has promised that the Messiah is going to come. And if he allows a nation to utterly destroy and wipe this nation out and it's gone, there is no hope for a Messiah coming. 
And so he is going to protect this nation. So you are my chosen. You are my servant. You are my friend. Now notice verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my, uh, with my righteous right hand. Right hand was always a symbol of strength. It's not he's saying he's going to do it with his right hand versus his left, with his strength. Uh, look, look, look up the phrase right hand. Do a Google, not a Google search, but a, a, uh, a Bible search, how many times that's used. And it's always in a context, almost always in a context of strength. And see if that's not the case. Now at verse 11 through 13, the Lord is going to cause his enemies to be dismayed. Behold, all those who are uh, incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced and shall be as nothing. Now we'll finish that, but what are we talking about? We're talking about Babylon. That is those that, this is the Babylonian period that we're discussing in chapters 40 on. And so while it would apply to any nation, it seems to be a reference to, to Babylon. God's going to bring them to shame. He's going to make them disgraced. He's going to make them as nothing. They will perish. Uh, and you're going to seek for them and they'll be as nothing. And those who war against you, verse 12, will become as nothing and non-existent. In other words, I'm going to take Babylon down. So the Lord's going to cause the enemy to be dismayed. That's why you don't need to be fearful. You're my servant after all. You're my chosen people. And those that are against you, Babylon, I'm going to take them down. All right, look at 14 to 16. The Lord will make his people strong, he says. Uh, fear not, you worm Jacob. Now, you probably would be offended if someone said, uh, trying to help you and comfort you, called you a worm. But it suggests weakness that Jacob, God's people, are as weak as a worm. And they need strength. Where's it going to come from? Well, his point here in 14 to 17, that I will make you strong. So now go back and see if that doesn't make sense. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you, with, uh, make you into a threshing sledge and sharp teeth. Now, that's the promise. I think that alludes to the release from Babylon. Uh, and being that they're going to, we know they're going to be released from Babylon, that I'm going to turn you that was a weak worm, turn things completely around from being a weak worm under the threat, under the, the thumb of Babylon, I'm going to turn you into a threshing sledge and sharp teeth. Uh, I think you're looking for that, that phrase uh, in one of the questions, maybe in the, the ones in the workbook, but verse 15 is going to be your answer for, for something you're looking for. Um, now let's drop down to verse 17, start another section, subsection. The Lord's going to remember his people in time of need. The Lord is going to remember his people in time of need. So the deliverance from ba uh, Babylonian captivity that God promises is compared to a couple of things here. Now notice what he says, uh, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, their tongue shall fail for thirst. That I will open, verse 18, rivers in desolate heights. So what God's going to do is going to bring fresh water to the thirsty. That's one comparison that's given. And the other is he's turning a wilderness into a pool of water. I will make uh, the wilderness a pool of water. Uh, can you imagine being in a wilderness and you're thirsty and you're parched and there's no water around and suddenly God creates a pool of water. So what the point is, is the Lord remembers his people when they're in captivity. So it's all a promise you're coming back out of captivity. 
You say, what does this all mean to me? What does this all mean to me? Uh, well, let's get verse 20, and then we'll summarize that section before we go further. Uh, that they may see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel. This was all done by the hand of God. Here's what this means to me. This means that I don't need to be fearful when God has given me some assurance about some matter, whatever that matter may be. That's number one. Something else that means to me is that if God fulfilled his promise here and he kept Assyria from taking them, he allowed Babylon to take them, but he brought them back out from Babylon and Cyrus and the Persians came forth just like he prophesied. Anything God has given promise to me, he's going to do. I can rest assured his promises will be fulfilled. And that's what that means to me. All right, let's go beginning at verse 21 now. Here's a challenge to the gods of the nations. Now, let them prove that they are real and have power by foretelling the future. Now, there is several places in this um, um, section of 40 to 44 where this would be true. This would be one of them. Uh, and that is, this section tells me that prophecy and fulfillment is strong evidence. So just to suppose that we have somebody come and speak to us during a meeting and, and he preaches on prophecy and fulfillment. He talks about, here was the prophecy concerning Babylon, it was fulfilled, and da-da-da-da-da. And he goes on and on and on with all the prophecies. And you say, okay, that was interesting, but I already believe in God and believe the Bible is true. That is some of the strongest evidence that God exists and that his word is true. Because God presents it as evidence right here. If these idols are anything, and so in interest of time, let, let's hit this quickly, 21 to 24. Uh, look at verse 23. Let them show things uh, that are to come hereafter, uh, that we may know that they are gods. In other words, he makes two challenges to them here. Let them show where they have made prophecies before that have been fulfilled, and then we'll know they have true powers of prophecy in their gods. Or let them prophesy now for the future, and when it comes to pass, then we'll know they're true gods. And the answer to that is, they are answering nothing. Uh, look at verse 28. When I asked them, they could, uh, when, uh, who when I asked them could answer a word, nor could they answer a word. In other words, they didn't say a word. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's like a uh, court scene. He puts the idols on trial and asks them, prove your, your power. They don't say a word. There is no evidence that they can provide. All right, now notice uh, at verse 25, one comes from the north. Well, that's Cyrus. He comes from the east and from the north. And again, your footnote, I believe number eight, will help you uh, figure that out. Uh, but again, here's prophecy given as evidence. Without, uh, in interest of time, uh, uh, verses 25 to 28 basically is saying, God says, here's my evidence. Uh, I gave you a chance to prove yourself. Let me prove myself. I gave prophecy concerning Babylon. I gave prophecy concerning Cyrus. I gave prophecy and prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And it came to pass just like I said. Let me give a prophecy about the future. And he does. And so prophecy and fulfillment stood as strong evidence that God is real and God is true. Now let's move to chapters 42 and 43. 42 and 43 go together. God will take care of his people. Now, this moves on rather quickly because one is they're not that long of a chapter, but again, 
The points are simple, and they're going to move along quickly because we're running out of time. <laughs> um, chapter 42, here's your second messianic section. So you're looking for that, the me second messianic section. The servant, the Messiah, will bring justice to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, this is the nature of how the prophet works. And, and you're, you're used to this by now, so this is not a surprise. Dark picture, future, then he comes over here and here's the Messiah on the other side. So he talks about my servant, my, my holy one. I'll bring my spirit and, and uh, pour forth justice on Gentiles as a footnote. Should it have been a surprise to the Jews who had any knowledge of the Old Testament that when God ushered in the Gentiles that this was, should that have surprised them? Amos had said Gentiles by name and so did Isaiah. It should not have surprised them. But it did. Uh, the point of verses 1 to 9 is that he's going to bring forth uh, the Gentile, uh, light to the Gentiles. Look at verse 6. That he's going to bring light to the Gentiles and open uh, blind eyes and bring out prisoners from prison. These are descriptions of salvation. So basically what you have in verses 1 to 9, the Messiah is going to bring justice. There's better days ahead and salvation will come through the Messiah. Now, verses 10 through 17 is a new song, a song of praise and thanks for deliverance. Now, uh, th there is some question uh, about that section, uh, about this deliverance, that uh, some think that refers perhaps to uh, the deliverance of, uh, under the Messiah, and it may, but it seems to fit the, the, the concept of deliverance from uh, Babylonian captivity. But let's, let's work through that and see. Uh, starting now at verse 10, there's praise to God who prevails over his enemies. So look at verse 10, a new song is sung. And look at verse 13, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man and he shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. And at the end of verse 13, he'll prevail over his, against his enemies. Well, that's certainly true under the Messiah. But I think perhaps because of what he says later following, this probably applies to the time of Babylonian, that, that God's going to overcome Babylonian captivity. God will lead his people out of that. That's what we're going to see beginning at verse 18. Now notice beginning at verse 17, God promises deliverance. Uh, God is promising deliverance through the Messiah. I mean, through, uh, uh, from Babylonian captivity down through verse 17. Verse 14, behold, I held my peace a long time and I have been still and restrained myself. And he said, I cry like a woman in labor, and I will lay waste the mountains, and I will dry up all the vegetation, and I'll drop the, uh, the pools. In other words, God, God waits out Babylon, but then he's, he's done with Babylon, and he's going to bring Babylon to an end. And he's going to cry out like a woman in labor, he says. Uh, and notice at verse 17, they shall be turned back and be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images. That's why I think this is talking about Babylon here uh, in 14 to 17. Now, I was, I was rushing to get to this section, 18 to 25, God's people were punished, Babylonian captivity, because of their disobedience. Now, this is why I tied the previous thing to <clears throat> the uh, Babylonian captivity. He said, uh, you were deaf, verse 18, you were blind, verse 19, and notice at verse 24, who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers, was it not the Lord? He against whom you have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his laws. That summarizes this section. 
Why did they go into captivity? Why, why did God allow them to go to Babylonian captivity? Because of their disobedience. Now I want to get this next section, chapter 43. Because God's going to deliver his people. Now Israel was God's chosen. He comes back to that point that he made earlier. So look at chapter 43. That um, for now, I'm, I'm at verse 1. Chapter 43, but now thus says the Lord who created you and formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. I'm looking at the end of verse 1. In other words, you're my chosen. Comes back to that point. Now, at verse 2 and 3, his point is, I, <clears throat> you are not forgotten when you pass through. Notice, and I think we've got a question on this. When you pass through the, uh, the rivers and the fire, when the rivers that overflow and the fires and the flames that scorch you. In other words, going through Babylonian captivity is like passing through the river, passing through the fire. And, and you're going to go through the river and you're going to go through the fire, but God hadn't forgotten you. When you go through your trials and your tribulations and, and your turmoil uh, and your chaos in life and your tragedies of life, God hadn't forgotten you. That's the point uh, that we can make an application. But God's not going to forget them there. Uh, what God plans to do for his people is going to serve as a witness. How so? Well, I've taken note in the, um, in the workbook about that a little bit, but I think the point is this, that it serves as a witness, is that uh, only God and none beside him could make a prophecy. And, uh, and furthermore, God makes a plan what he's going to do to Babylon, and when he's done with Babylon, nobody, look at verse 13, nobody can change that. Nobody can change God's plan of what he's going to do with Babylon. Uh, I will work and who will reverse it? In other words, I get ready to t take Babylon down. Nobody's going to change that. Nobody can reverse it. Nobody can do anything about that. All right. The time is about gone. I wanted to hit a couple of points here and then and summarize quickly 44 and we'll be done. Look at verse 14 and 15. God's going to bring uh, uh, Bab uh, Babylon or the Chaldeans down. Um, for your sake, I will send to Babylon. And bring down, um, bring down, uh, bring them all down as fugitives. That's the phrase I'm looking for. I'm going to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. The Chaldeans, the same as the Babylons, who rejoice in their ships. In other words, I'm going to bring Babylon down. That's the point in verse 15. Uh, God's going to do verse 16 to 18 what seems like it's impossible, absolutely impossible, and uh, God's going to do that. Now let's quickly summarize 44 and we'll be done. 44, Israel should not fear because the one true God promises to deliver. That's the point. Uh, there is no other God like him. Uh, I, I want to get that point first. 6 to 20, no one can prophesy like God can. He turns and talks about how the idols are nothing but they're worthless. They were made by man. Uh, and man creates them and he creates his own God. So the idols are worthless and there's no God but, but the one true God. Now then, let's go back to verses uh, 1 to 5. And God's people have no reason to fear because God, who is the only one and true and living God, is going to bless them. So you go into captivity, you're going to come back. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because the one true and living God has promised to bless you. And one will say, I am the Lord's, verse 5, and call himself by the name of Jacob. God indeed will bless them. Israel has not been forgotten. God will not forget his people. Let's, let's close with that section. 
Look at verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. We'll end on that note. You will not be forgotten. You're going into captivity, but you're not going to be forgotten at all. And that's the message of chapter 44.